This episode was recorded on the 15th of November, 2023. Certain information discussed in this episode might vary from the time of release due to the ever-changing situation of the conflict. Throughout history, the relationship between the United States and Arab countries has been complex and multifaceted. It is mainly marked by a combination of geopolitical interests, economic ties, and regional conflicts. This often troubled relationship has been affected by many factors, including the Arab-Israeli conflict, regional power dynamics, and U.S. interventions. We're currently witnessing what could be seen as a crisis in this relationship, with the Israel-Gaza war intensifying and going on for six weeks now, killing thousands of Palestinian women and children. U.S. President Joe Biden is facing domestic and global calls to pressure Israel into agreeing to a ceasefire with Hamas. But his administration has not been open to the option, despite a growing civilian death toll, something that governments in the Middle East have repeatedly called for. Are we in front of a new crisis between the Arabs and the Americans? How is this affecting the current conflict, and how complicated could this become? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Asma'al Na'ar, Arab Affairs Editor here at The National. And joining me today in studio is Brian Katulis, Vice President of Policy at the Middle East Institute, to explain how Israel's war in Gaza affected the U.S. position in the region. Let's just start and ask, how do you think the Israel-Gaza war has affected the U.S. relations right now in the Middle East, given the context of what we've seen the past month? I think uh, we see the U.S. Uh, relations with the Arab world at a crisis point. And not to be melodramatic about it, but on this visit, it feels a lot like previous moments uh, around the 2003 Iraq war and perhaps during episodes between 2011 and 2015, where there was this growing gap of trust and confidence um, be- uh, between the United States and some of our closest Arab partners. And it's it's really worrisome, but I understand why it, that's the case, because you've got a war that now is almost six weeks into the conflict, and it's been very deadly for Palestinians seeing the images of innocent civilians, babies, others dying in airstrikes. It's having an impact. And U.S. diplomats from Secretary of State Tony Blinken have on down have heard from their counterparts in the region that they want to ceasefire immediately, and that's, that's not the U.S. policy position right now. It's something quite different. And I think that gap is, is something that U.S. officials need to worry more about, not only in terms of how they shape the trajectory of this conflict, but then importantly, where it all goes, where does it lead to? Because we're going to need those partners in, in the region and, and those conversations to talk about what's next and, and how does this all fit in. You add to it also ongoing concerns about Iran and its role across the region. Um, we're, we're at a difficult moment, I think. I think the Biden administration has made U.S. policy in the Middle East a lower priority in its overall agenda. We saw that in the first two and a half years of his term. He halted arms sales to traditional U.S. allies in the Gulf, and that sort of pushed these allies towards adversaries like Russia and China, right? Do you think that has now backfired in terms of what we've seen in the past month and a half, and just in terms of that relation yeah, look, so when President Biden came into office in January 2021, his center of gravity and focus was domestic, in part because we had a huge crisis on the COVID pandemic front, 4,000 people still dying a day back then, an economic crisis that led to 10 million Americans unemployed when he came into office. So 
there was an extreme focus, which I understand, on sort of the domestic recovery. When he looked internationally, his priorities were the three C's, China, climate change, and then also COVID global, the global implications of it. He came in, I think, with a posture defined by some of those who had worked in the Obama administration when it came to the Middle East, essentially arguing that we shouldn't, should not expend so much time and money and energy on this. So when you look at how he staffed up his team on foreign policy, the Middle East was not the quickest to get them ambassadors appointed and other things. Um, are we paying for the consequences right now? I think a, a bit, right? Because getting things done in the region requires working relationships that are positive, that are constructive, that that are built on trust and confidence. And before this crisis, what's interesting is that in earlier this year, the Biden team, I think, was investing more time in, in build, rebuilding those relationships. The U.S.-Saudi relationship, the efforts to try to get a normalization deal, the idea of uh, India-Middle East economic corridor announced in September at the G20. All of these were the product in part of a stepped-up U.S. diplomatic engagement that was a bit more proactive. But flash forward to early November 2023, and now it's in a very reactive crisis management tactical mode. So yes, I do think that ultimately not investing in those relationships early on in the, in the first term or in the first few years hurt sort of America's standing. But what I'd say is you could always build this back. America, I still think, is viewed as the preferred strategic partner of choice by many of the countries in the region. People see the problems with Russia, the challenges with China. And I think if the U.S. engages a bit more proactively and in a much more balanced way, I think it can restore a lot of that trust and confidence that was lost. But where do you think it all went wrong for the Biden administration just in terms of the past month and a half, in terms of its reaction and handling of this crisis? Especially we saw Biden try to make it out to the Middle East, did a whole tour. There was supposed to be a meeting with Mahmoud Abbas and a lot of Middle Eastern leaders, and they canceled that after that shock attack, Israeli attack on that hospital, right? Yeah. So look, and even on that canceled meeting, you mentioned Israel attack on the hospital. To this day, there's a dispute about whether that was a projectile coming from a Palestinian terrorist group or an Israeli strike. Israeli and U.S. Uh, officials claim it was not an Israeli strike. The I think much of the narrative in the Arab world is that it was. And it led to that cancellation of a meeting that was aimed at discussing sort of a common approach between the United States and some of its key Arab partners. And that, that leads to sort of one of the conundrums or dilemmas that the U.S. faces in all of this is how do you, how do you plan for the day after in, in Gaza and what comes next if you can't even agree on what happened on the day of? <laughs> if, if we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things and it's clear there's a big gap. I think the big challenge here that Biden faces is he, he set out several goals about the first week into this conflict. One was supporting Israel's right of self-defense and to eliminate a threat from Hamas. Two was to get hostages and American citizens trapped in Gaza out and home. Three was to prevent a regional war. Four was to provide humanitarian aid and respond to the uh, real grave concerns, humanitarian concerns that Palestinians in Gaza are facing. And then fourth, fifth was to uh, maintain a strong working relationships with the Arab states. 
there's tensions between all of those things. Meaning, if you if the U.S. continues to back Israel's right of self-defense with no red lines or restrictions, it can escalate tensions on the on the regional front, and we see that already happening. We also see uh, a very incomplete, and I would say to date failed response on the humanitarian concerns. Hostages aren't home. Uh, hundreds of Americans are still trapped in in Gaza, and I think where it all went wrong was the Biden team not figuring out a plan to how to how to navigate the tensions between these different goals. It's almost like they're trying to do everything and be everything to everyone at once, but then ultimately, if they're not going to stand behind some of their uh, statements, like Israel should abide by the the rules of war, the international rules of war, but then when asked, okay, what are your mechanisms to ensure that they're doing that, U.S. officials will say, well, we're not going to be the judge and jury and all of this. So clearly there's, it's statements without policy backing it up. Because it hasn't said outright that like it's going to fight alongside Israel in terms of troops, in terms of support, but at the same time, the aid package that was given to to Israel, like the emergency aid package in terms of, uh, I think it was 14 billion. It's not been passed yet. It hasn't been passed yeah. yet, but there's efforts from the Biden administration to to, to push yeah. that through, right? Yeah. So where does it stand? Like, could it play a factor in terms of like weaponizing Israel, but then also try to be peacemaker at the same time? Yeah, I think that goes to the, what I talk, talked about is tensions between the Biden's self-stated goals and objectives. It wants to help Israel back itself. It's, it's self-defense and eliminate threats uh, from Hamas, which still exists, right? Hamas is still firing rockets into Israeli population centers. and But that goes to the fundamental contradiction or conundrum about the U.S. role in all of this. It wants to be everything to everyone, but ultimately I think the region can see where its priorities lie. And it is right now in uh, Israel's self-defense. I think it's trying quietly mostly to use that leverage to shape Israel's actions, to restrain itself. It wasn't just a humanitarian pause, I think what was on the table was a three-day a three day ceasefire. And these negotiations are very complicated, as I understand. It's, and it's the sort of thing that those who know don't really talk about it publicly, and those who talk about it publicly don't really have the essence of the specifics, because it involves not just hostages and hundreds of American citizens trapped in Gaza uh, or access to humanitarian aid. So how the U.S. uses its leverage with Israel, also at a time you add to it the layer of the shared threat that the United States, Israel, and many of our Arab partners face from Iran right now. And Iran is using that threat on Israel's northern border uh, with with its proxy Hezbollah. So right now the perception is, and why I think U.S.-Arab world relationship is, is in a bit of a crisis, is that our number one priority is backing Israel's self-defense but to the detriment of these other goals. And I think the pathway to actually trying to navigate that more smoothly and towards our end goals is to listen more to some of our closest Arab partners, not only hear what they're having to say, but then develop an action plan to get to a ceasefire. Easier said than done when you look at the negotiations over the hostages and access to Gaza, but it has to be connected to a long-term plan. I just came back from Riyadh. I was covering the Arab Islamic Summit. And you know what I found very interesting is when you have someone like the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Bashar al-Assad of Syria, and Ibrahim Raisi of Iran all use the same phrase of 
the Western double standards. Even though like Mohammed bin, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman didn't name America by name during his speech when he was referring to the double standards, clearly there's this anger against the Biden administration when you have traditional adversaries in the Middle East all agree on this one point, right? right. Well, how does that affect Biden's standing in the Middle East moving forward? Well, look, those statements, I think, are important, but they're also at surface level because talk about gaps of trust and confidence between countries and leaders. I think you still have that between many of the Gulf states and Iran, despite this, these recent trends towards de-escalation. Um, it, it doesn't help matters. And I also think it doesn't, it doesn't motivate the, the United States or the Biden administration to advance a deeper and steadier engagement in the Middle East, right? It sometimes can provoke the counter-reaction of, well, okay, maybe we shouldn't spend so much time. Like, it may push them back to their initial posture of this region is just a mess. A lot of people don't like us. We've got problems at home. We're dealing with China. And as, as we record this, the uh, President Biden is meeting with the Chinese leader, uh, Xi Jinping, in, in San Francisco. So we've got other priorities. So it may, in the broader conversation within the Biden administration's foreign policy team, it could provoke this reaction of, oh, this is all of these countries come together and then criticize us. How is that going to incentivize us to really get more deeply involved, right? I hope it doesn't do that because I actually do think the best response would be to craft a clearer short and then medium longer term plan with our partners in the region. So I, I think part of it would be okay, we hear the criticism, but we should, the right response would be, we're going to engage more deeply. We're going to have a longer term sort of plan that's in concert in the way that in reaction to the ISIS crisis, the U.S. built a coalition that got a lot of buy-in from regional partners. Okay, why don't we quietly build some sort of coalition that actually deals with the question of Palestine? I want to discuss something more recently. The White House said its independent intelligence supported Israel's claims that Hamas is using Gaza hospitals, but especially the biggest one, Al-Shifa Hospital, to hide command posts and hostages. This morning, we're hearing from the Israeli media themselves admitting that they haven't found any evidence so far of hostages being kept there or even like Hamas command posts at that area. So the question is then this blind support of Washington for Israel when it comes to these claims of what's happening on the ground. Where, how does that affect the trust-building factor with the Arab world? I think it complicates it. Again, you're, you're commenting on something that I think is probably an incomplete story, as best as I can tell. And then whenever there's claims of U.S. intelligence versus independent Israeli intelligence, we have to see how this all plays out. I think in the bigger picture, it, I wouldn't be surprised, given that Hamas had dedicated so much time and effort to building resource tunnels underneath, if not hospitals, residential compounds. And, and I think what we've seen before is that Hamas is not disinclined to use some of their own innocent civilians essentially as shields for themselves. And that's, that adds a layer of complication. But that, that, that perception, what you just articulated, I think is an important one that the United States has to deal with, and not simply by making what I think was a mistake when President Biden just blithely dismissed the, the death counts that were coming from Gaza. People watching this, they notice, and then they see that actually, okay, later on it's verified, right? And that's, that's the challenge here. And I, I think there, there's a real risk here. And it not, it's not just, we're fo obviously focusing on the Biden administration, but I think America runs a risk 
of not only double standards, as was stated in that statement from regional leaders, but the sense that one life has less value than another, right? And the way that some U.S. officials on both sides of the aisle talk about Israeli lives versus Palestinian lives versus Ukrainians, people see it and they, they perceive it from their own lens. And I, I, I wish people would just go back to, and especially U.S. officials, reminding everyone that every, every life has an inherent value to it, especially those who are innocent and young and non-combatant. And like to, to, to just talk about this as collateral damage in these phrases that are used leads to this process of dehumanization, which actually I think takes us further away from what's needed, which is a more genuine recognition of the complicated nature of these conflicts. How do you get to conflict resolution and build trust? And that's got to be built on a basis of understanding that we have a shared humanity. And that may sound soft to some people, but if we're seen as privileging one group or one country versus another, we're obviously not going to be seen as a credible leader in the eyes of uh, uh, millions of people. So we should just call it like it is. And this is a human tragedy that has uh, affected so many people. And as we see in our, in coming from America, it's directly affected people socially, psychologically. You see the, not only the debate and the competing protests, but you see people being murdered because of who they are. A young Palestinian American boy, six years old, and was killed by his landlord. Last week, a, a, a Jewish American a man at a protest in California looks like he was murdered by someone who was on the other side of a different protest. And when we forget about the inherent value or when we just fixate on body counts, it sort of dehumanizes and doesn't paint the picture of what's needed to actually get us from conflict to a sustainable, just peace. I think more closer to home, there's now more talks about next year for the elections. There are nearly 1.1 million voters in the 2020 elections including 145,000 Muslim voters in Michigan who now say that two-thirds of them won't cast their ballots for Biden or will sit it out, right? And Michigan, one would argue, did save him in the last election. They turned up in droves and gave him that swing state vote. How do you think this war will affect his chances next year, especially many billing this as like, this is his war, this is his legacy and how he reacted to it? Yeah, well... First, I think it's still too early to tell. We're under a year from the next elections, but a year uh, is a lifetime in American politics. And a lot can happen, and I hope this conflict ends sooner rather than later. So a lot depends on the fate of hostages, when people get home, and things like this. So I think, I hear the commentary, I think it's a bit premature, and especially those in states like Michigan and things like this, if they want to sit it out and get help get Donald Trump reelected and look at what Trump's plans are for an even more vigorous Muslim ban and other sorts of policies that, in my view, when you look at Trump's approach to the Israel-Palestine question, prob probably wasn't one of the best ones that we've seen in time. So I, c I can understand the anger and the argument when I look at the polls today, and it's, again, only a month, month and a half, it's, it's a bit too early to tell how this is affecting people and voters. And if it is, this is another thing I want to highlight is like before this crisis, most of the national security foreign policy questions, including China and Russia's war against Ukraine, were barely registering in the double digits. It was below when you combine sort of foreign policy. 
the U.S., it wasn't a priority before this crisis. So I, I think we have to see how long it goes on, how long the war goes on, and then how much it really resonates more broadly in the American public. Because when you look at it just from the standpoint of competing protests or demonstrations, there was a pretty large one of pro-Israel Jewish Americans and others in Washington. And there was another one uh, that was more pro-Palestinian across many cities. But, but that's not the electorate, right? That's generally an elite set of competing voices that maybe cancel each other out. When you look at where the domestic polls are, I think still to this day, the concerns are on, focused on inflation, on education, on co- things that are closer to home. And frankly, when you get outside of the bubble, I work at a think tank in Washington, D.C., when you get outside and talk to ordinary Americans, I think they're mostly frightened and confused about what's going on in the Middle East. I think the dominant image of the terrorist group Hamas's atrocities against innocent civilians and the images of hostages and Americans still being held hostage, that's dominant among your ordinary American. And to this day, uh, I just saw a poll yesterday that said that a majority of Americans still have more sympathy towards Israel than the others. So these factors that you raise and going on here are important, but it's still unclear how much this all plays out if you're a cool sort of political analyst, I would hold your fire and see, okay, how does the war play out? What are the options that are really going to be at the ballot? Will Trump still be the nominee? And people, so it's a little too early to tell, I think. A final question. You know, I always ask analysts if you could advise U.S. foreign policy right now and what they need to do in the short-term versus long-term strategy in terms of talking to their Middle East partners, what does that scenario look like? I think the first thing that needs to be done is rather than be in this reactive posture, reacting to events and what Israel is doing or what Iran and its proxies are doing, I think the U.S. should come up privately with more of a plan of where are our current actions that will lead us to a cessation of hostilities, a ceasefire, and then the definition of an end state that's realistic, not a fantasy land one that says, oh, international peacekeepers or Arabs are going to come in and, and somehow police Gaza. And I think that needs to be done almost immediately is to is to have i know every week there's a senior official coming out here but it's episodic tactical and crisis management i think there needs to be more of a doubling down of us engagement with our partners and not just us coming up with a plan but us listening in conversation and then developing a joint plan much in the same way again the isis the coalition had some results, some on the military front stronger than the humanitarian or dealing with the human security questions. So I think that's number one. I think number two, and this is going to be especially hard, especially hard in, a, in, a, in an election year, but, but trying to build a bipartisan coalition at home. So you asked about U.S. partners in the region. I relate sort of that our domestic conversation has become increasingly red versus blue, Republicans versus Democrats on everything, and especially the M- Middle East policy. And for years, different parts of the Republican Party have tried to use the U.S.-Israel relationship as a partisan wedge issue in our politics. And I also think there are certain elements of the Democratic Party that are trying to use U.S. ties with various countries out here, as we talked about before, U.S.-Saudi, uh, U.S.-Emirati ties. People try to play games with this to, for domestic or ideological political advantage. I actually think that disadvantages us because... Our adversaries and our partners see these divisions and they see the pendulum swings from one administration to the next. 
I, I think we should try to call a ceasefire on that domestically. That's mostly on us. And try to treat all of our partnerships, as imperfect as some of them are, as true partners. And, and not try to politicize this, because I think uh, adversaries, enemies like Iran or some of the terror groups, they see those divisions and then try to exploit that in our own media and political debates. So those are two things that I think are missing. Thank you, Brian, for your thoughts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Headlines. For more information on what's happening in Israel and Gaza, please subscribe to get every episode and follow our coverage at thenationalnews.com. This episode was produced by Dua Farid, Bill Green, and Arthur Edison. And I'm your host, Ismail Naar.